So I came across a news headline this week that made me laugh. I found it hilarious, which maybe reveals a bit of a twisted sense of humor. But um, the headline read this. Marathon organizers apologize for making course 500 meters too long. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine being a runner and thinking that you're done, but then having 500 meters left to go? And even funnier was that, at least to me, not to the people involved, but there was a lead change in the last 200 meters of this extended race. So the guy who should have won the race actually came in second place because someone passed him in that extra 500 meters. Oops. Um, I don't know about uh, running a marathon, 42 kilometers. Uh, I never intend to run one, but maybe these runners' bodies are so fine-tuned that at 42.195 kilometers, they know it's time to stop. And in that extra 500 meters, these runners were really struggling because they, their bodies said, hey, it's time to be done now. Uh, I, I'm not sure, but it makes me think about times where things are going difficult in our lives, when things are challenging, when we're annoyed or frustrated or angry. How do we usually respond? Well, often we're not very pleasant to be around because things are dragging out longer than they should or things aren't going the way that we want them to go. We're stressed, we're disappointed, we're we're, um, we're tired. The, the, the marathon that went too long also struck me as an apt analogy of where we're at right now in the world, right? We, we thought that COVID initially would be fairly short, and then we realized that it was going to go on a little longer than we thought it was going to go. And it feels like the longer we go, the more the finish line seems to be moving on us. It feels like we're in that extra 500 meters, and the, the goal line keeps getting pushed further away. And it can be frustrating and it can be really hard. I actually heard one leadership guy that I I read talk about the pandemic as we thought we were running a marathon and then we came to the end of the marathon and realized that it's actually a triathlon and there's two more endurance sports to go yet. There's more that's required of us. Last week we began a series that we're calling Together, a study of Ephesians chapter 4. And we're reminding ourselves that this is a critical juncture in the life of the church. Where we're at right now in this moment in time is very important. And how we handle it will dictate how healthy our church will be as we move forward in time. Of course, there's uh, always a range of opinions on on COVID and related matters. But how we handle that and how we uh, act out on the unity that Christ has achieved for us is going to be really important for us. And so we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. We reminded ourselves that the unity of the church is actually used by God to declare the wisdom of God into the spiritual realms. And so unity is not something that we pursue just so that we can feel warm and fuzzy with each other. It actually has a, a, a purpose that goes into the spiritual world beyond what we can even see. So it's highly important that we're pursuing it. And we saw that Paul says two things about unity that are true at the same time, that it's an accomplished fact through the work of Christ on the cross, and it's also something that we ought to live out. Those two things are true at the same time. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, Paul addresses those things in reverse order. So in verses 4 to 6, he talks about the the way that Uh, Our unity is an accomplished fact, and he he looks at the things that actually unite us. In verses 1 to 3, he says, these are the ways that you ought to live it out. And so it's those first three verses that we'll study today. But Paul is basing the ethical exhortation that he's about to give us 
on the, the doctrinal truth that he's just taught in the last three chapters. He starts chapter 4 with the word therefore or the word then, which reminds us that he's building on everything that he said. So there's key truths that he has uh, expressed, things like God chose us, that, that God gave us the Holy Spirit, that he's redeemed us from sin and from death, that he's given us a privileged position alongside Christ, that he's made us one body, and that through the church he will do immeasurably more than what we can ask or imagine. Now, when we, when we look at that and we look at the posture then that we ought to live with, it, it leaves us with some questions about how unity actually works, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes I wonder if I'm a bit of an idealist. Like, we set up the ideal of unity, and if we'll just strive towards it, we'll get there. Like, it's, it's something that we can do. But the more practical side of me and some of the questions you might be asking was, well, how does that actually work out then? Like when it comes to COVID, are, is there a point where we need to say this is right and this is wrong? Or this is where we need to draw a line and this is how we're going to behave and we're not going to behave in that way? Is there a point at which we need to do that? And these are good questions, important questions that need answers. But I want to remind us that Paul actually reminds us of the posture that we are to take before he starts addressing any kind of issue. And in Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6, eventually he'll get specific about certain relationships and certain issues. But the posture is what we need to take before we're even ready to engage in those kinds of questions. And so it's to that posture that we're going to turn today. We'll summarize our teaching this morning by saying we pursue unity because we're already united in Christ. We pursue unity because we're already united in Christ. So let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. This is what Paul says. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So we notice there immediately that there are some, some big ideas expressed in total language. Be completely humble. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. This is something that we are to sink our whole energy into as followers of Jesus. Now, up until this point in Ephesians, Paul has only given one command, and it was the command to remember. Remember that you used to be far away from God, but, by, but through G Jesus you've been brought near. Now Paul is going to give us another command, and even though in the English it breaks it into sentences and different imperative commands, in the Greek it's one long sentence that Paul is writing with one command, followed by other words that help us understand how to live out that command. So the command here in verse 1 is to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Actually, in English it says live, in Greek it says walk. Walk in a way worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This idea of, of walking is synonymous with the way that you live. You know, I've told you this before, but this happened to me again the other day. Uh, I was at a church event, and someone came up to me and said, Man, you walk like a Tyson. And uh, apparently, us Tysons have a distinctive way of walking that is noticeable to other people. I just think I'm walking, but apparently I'm walking in a distinct kind of way that people can tell places me within a certain family group. It's genetic, apparently, that we all walk this kind of way. This is the kind of thing that people should say about you when they see the way that you live, that you walk in the way of Christ. Your life resembles that of Jesus and his followers. So this is the command, walk. 
And then Paul's going to tell us how we are to live that out. Paul also says at the beginning here, I urge you. This is a word that is a a strong encouragement and an exhortation. It's not really a command as much as it's an invitation to something that they really should be doing. Reminds me of of a parent talking with their teenage child and the child is trying to make a decision about something and they're coming to their parent for advice and the parent knows that the child is the one who needs to make this decision. They need to live with the consequences of what they decide, but the parent also has wisdom to to, uh, explain to this child some experience that might help them make the best decision possible. And so the parent will come along and say, this is your decision, you need to make it, but I strongly encourage you to consider this or to do this. This is how Paul is coming to the church. says, hey, things are going to go better for you if you will live this way, but you have to decide to do it. Then Paul identifies himself as a prisoner for the Lord. The Greek actually is a prisoner in the Lord, which we can actually understand in two ways. One is that Paul is probably in prison when he's writing this letter to the Ephesian church. But the second uh, way is that Paul actually sees himself as a prisoner for the Lord. You know, when I read that this week, it actually jarred me a little bit. And it did so because of all of the language that we're hearing these days about personal rights and freedoms. Right? You've heard that argument. Perhaps you've made that argument. Many of you, many of us are, are having these questions about freedom in our country. And is, is the government taking away our freedom with some of these things that they've been doing? And are they justified in doing so or not? Now, there's a couple ways we have to think about freedom. If we want to talk about freedom in a society, as citizens of a country, probably most of us would agree we'd rather live in a more free society than a less free society. But it becomes a little troublesome for me when I hear Christians making that argument from a biblical perspective, that freedom is something that we should experience because we are Christians. I don't think that really squares with much of what the New Testament teaches and not with with what Paul says here. Paul calls himself a prisoner in the Lord. And rarely do you see, if ever, would you see Paul arguing for his own personal rights and freedoms. Instead, he's quick to say he's given up his freedom. And the freedom that we experience is a, as a spiritual freedom, a freedom from, from sin, not a freedom uh, in a societal kind of way. Paul explains this more in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 16. He says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin. There's that freedom. We have been set free from the power of sin, but you've become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example, says Paul, from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you, did you hear what Paul says there? You're, you're actually not free. You're free in the sense that sin no longer has control over you. 
But now you've offered yourself and offered your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and you are a slave to God. The difference is that when you give your allegiance to God, he gives you life and joy and peace and eternal life in response. Whereas if you're a slave to sin, you actually receive death and the opposite of the joy and peace that Jesus gives. Might I suggest that the pursuit of freedom in a human sense is actually enslaving. But freedom to Jesus Christ brings true freedom. And Paul writes in Galatians 5 that this freedom actually comes with this responsibility then. This, this slavery comes with this responsibility to be obedient to God and to submit yourself to one another. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Your freedom ought to lead you to serve people rather than assert your own rights. So let me just leave you with the question is, how does COVID give you an opportunity to humbly serve one another in love as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, as a prisoner in the Lord? We don't do this alone. In fact, individualism is a sign of immaturity in the Christian life. So Paul says then, uh, walk in such a way worthy of the calling that you've received. The the calling with which you have been called is the the Greek term. There's this high emphasis on calling. He's not talking about a calling to a specific job necessarily, but he's talking about the, the calling that we've received to be faithful and obedient servants of the Lord Jesus Christ in response to the grace that we've received. N.T. Wright says a key part of this calling is the Christian hope, which works like this. Because King Jesus has conquered death itself, All who give him their faithful allegiance are assured that the same victory will be theirs as well. This is the calling to which they must live up. At every moment, in every decision, with every word and action, they are to be aware that the call to follow Jesus the Messiah and give him their complete loyalty takes precedence over everything else. 100% commitment to the Lord Jesus. That's the calling. So then Paul's going to get into some some words here that'll help us to understand how we are to live in a way worthy of the calling that we have received. These aren't separate commands. These are are, uh, supplementary words that help us to understand what it means to walk rightly. So first he says, be completely humble. Uh, Klein Snodgrass says this focuses on one's thinking, that we we think in an accurate way about ourselves. Now this term in Greek was never used positively uh, in, in society at large. It was applied to slaves. These are lowly people. They ought to think of themselves lowly. But the Old Testament and, and Jews take, took this word and applied it in a positive way. It's actually applied to Jesus in Philippians 2, verse 3. And humility over pride is always celebrated as a good thing. See 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Clinton Arnold says, Few things are more destructive to community life than pride and arrogance. So I want to do a little test with you, Okay. Um, I'm going to give you five statements, and I want you to think to yourself, do I know more than the average person about this subject? Do I know less than the average person about this subject? Or do I know about the same as the average uh, person about this subject? Okay, more, less, or about the same. You don't have to say it out loud, but in your head, answer it. Okay, so here's the first one. Do you know more, less, or the same about this? Why English became the official language of the United States? Okay, number two, 
why women were burned at the stake in Salem, Massachusetts. More or less are the same. Number three, what job Walt Disney had before he drew Mickey Mouse? Number four, on which space flight did humans first lay eyes on the Great Wall of China? And then number five, what effect eating candy has on kids' behavior? Okay, more, less, or the same. There is uh, fascinating research that has been done on how we think about how much we know about a given subject. Uh, two guys named Dunning and Kruger have done a lot of this kind of research. Uh, and they found that when we are less competent in something, we actually are led to be overconfident in how much we actually know about a given topic. So uh, one of the tests, they found this. People who scored lowest on tests of logical reasoning, grammar, and sense of humor had the most inflated opinion of their own skill. They scored the lowest but thought they were better than they were. They thought they performed 62% better than their peers on these tests, but they actually only outperformed 12% of their peers. And so Adam Grant in his book, Think Again, says, the less intelligent we are in a particular domain, the more we seem to overestimate our actual intelligence in that domain. Okay, so by now you know that I'm trying to set you up for failure with this little test. And perhaps you saw through my little game. But here's the truth about those five statements. If you thought you knew much of anything at all about those statements, you need to think again. Because English is not the official language of the United States. There is no official language of the United States. And in Salem, Massachusetts, suspected witches were burned at the stake. They were never hanged. And this one, I had no idea about this one. Walt Disney didn't actually draw Mickey Mouse. It was actually another animator who did that. Um, you can't actually see the Great Wall of China from space. That was a surprise to me too. I thought you could. And uh, the effect, uh, the average effect of sugar on children's behavior is zero. So children, you can rejoice and ask for candy for a bedtime snack. See, we think we know a lot about things we actually don't know very much about. This is where humility comes in. We have to recognize that our thinking is limited, that the best we can do is understand the best that we can, but we have to recognize that we have limitations. You might not be right on certain things, and that's okay. Being wrong is an opportunity to learn. Uh, Bishop uh, W. Sean McKnight said this, we are uh, ideologically blind sometimes to the truth because of our desire to see things the way that we already think. And so this is something that we have to be careful with. And, and there's an obvious application to COVID, I think, but I'm not trying to limit it just to that. It's in all kinds of areas of life. You know, how many times have you had a conversation where you tried to pretend that you knew more than you actually did? I think we all do it. But when we humble ourselves before one another, we're able to learn from one another because we know that we don't have the market on truth cornered. Even Paul recognizes this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. He says, Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. You would think that Paul, this great theologian, would say with confidence, I've got this figured out. No, he says, well, we know in part now, but we'll know more once we're with the Lord. So Adam Grant says one of the Latin roots of the word humility means from the earth. It's about being grounded, recognizing that we're flawed and we're fallible. And when we can bring that attitude to a conversation, we can learn and we can learn together. 
So Paul says, be completely humble. He says, be completely gentle. Uh, gentleness reminds me of a story that, that Pastor Art told years ago that has stuck with me. Uh, from the 1930s, there's three young guys who got onto a bus and went to the back of the bus and saw a lone gentleman sitting there and tried to pick a fight with him. The, the man resisted, declined, did not want any part in this fight, and these three guys continued to, to goad him, to try and provoke him into this kind of fight, and, and he kept declining and declining and declining. And finally, this man got up to get off the bus, and when he got up, these three guys realized that the guy was a lot larger standing up the, than he was when he was sitting down, and he handed them his business card as he walked off the bus. And on it, it said, Joe Lewis, boxer. <laughs> They, they had tried to pick a fight with the heavyweight champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. What Joe Lewis demonstrated in that moment was gentleness, which we could understand as power under restraint. Power under restraint. Joe Lewis very well could have exercised his power in that moment. Probably could have flattened those guys with one punch each. But he knew this is not the time or place to exercise this force. He was restrained. He was self-controlled. Gentleness is actually quite tied to self-control. It means when things don't go your way, when things don't go how you want them to go, you don't fly off the handle. You can respond with kindness and with love and gentleness. Gentleness doesn't mean weakness. It means knowing when to exercise power and knowing when to be restrained. Uh, Paul also says we are to be patient. John Chrysostom was a preacher and an archbishop in the 4th century. And he defined patience in this fascinating way. He said, patience, to be patient is to have a wide and big soul. <laughs> to have a wide and big soul. You can hold a lot. The word in Greek literally breaks apart into two pieces. That means long-suffering. That you have endurance and perseverance. I mean, think about impatient people. They, they get upset pretty fast. You know, when I'm merging onto the highway and the person in front of me is going 60 instead of 100 to get onto the highway, I get impatient. And I might mutter something under my breath. Patient people are able to be restrained, to be calm, to not take offense really easily. These are the kind of people that are easy to dialogue with and easy to have conversations. Then Paul says we're to bear what with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. This reminded me of, um, if you ever watch home renovation shows on TV, you know, the typical show is that the contractor goes in and, and the, the couple or the homeowner is standing there and saying, well, we want to open this up. We want to take these walls out. And then they look all, you know, puzzled at the wall. Well, I wonder if this is a load-bearing wall. And then they'll get up in the attic and the guy will have his flashlight and he says, well, this is, the load is getting carried over here and all the way down to the foundation over there and we can take out this wall, but if we want to do this one, it's going to $10,000 to put in the, the beam and we can do it, but it's going to cost a lot of money. The, you need support to carry weight is the idea. And Paul says here we're to bear with one another in love, which kind of makes you think that we ought to hold each other up, but the language here is actually um, reflected back at myself. I'm supposed to bear myself up as I interact in love with other people. I'm responsible to hold myself up, to, to hold my end of, of the relationship as I interact in love with other people. 
Uh, Ernest Best says it this way, no one ever finds it easy to see and allow for the point of view and action of other people. Within the community, Christians don't escape this, but regularly have to deal with what they regard as the faults of their fellow Christians. And for this, love is essential. And one of the ways in which we could fail at this point of time is to divide into camps of opinion. I think this way and you think that way, so it's kind of an us and them type thing. You know, if we're going to bear with one another in love, it's an us altogether thing within the arms of God. And then Paul says in verse 3, we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice he says maintain. He doesn't say establish. This unity has been given to us by the Holy Spirit and we're to maintain it. It's the unity given to us and also demonstrated by the Holy Spirit within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, The Spirit gives us this unity, this unity that was established by Jesus Christ on the cross by the eternal purpose and plan of the Heavenly Father. Three persons in one God which all support one another. Different personality, different roles, and yet they support and submit to one another in love. This is the model that we are to pursue as the church. So we're to make every effort, says Paul, to maintain this unity. N.T. Wright says, whatever position we take, the one thing we can't do is to pretend that this unity isn't a central and vital issue. Unless we are working to maintain, defend, and develop the unity we already enjoy and to overcome, demolish, and put behind us the disunity we still find ourselves in, we can scarcely claim to be following Paul's teaching. We're to work for unity and to work against disunity, and we realize we're not mature yet. Paul will say later we're to do all these things as we grow into maturity. We're not mature yet. And so it's a growth process. We cling to the unity of the Spirit until we are made completely unified in Him. And then Paul says uh, we're to maintain the bond of peace. This could be a reference to his chains, like we are chained together with our responsibility to be peaceful, or it could mean the peace that we experience together bonds us together. Probably could be both of those things. So we are to pursue unity because we're already united in Christ. So let me ask you this as we finish. Which of the traits that Paul has listed here do you need to to work on? Is it being humble? Is it being gentle? Is it bearing with one another in love? Is it working a little bit harder to maintain unity? And here's where I I, want to challenge us all as, as we hear these words from Paul. You know, there's, there's all kinds of, of terrible stories of conflict through COVID and how families have been divided. And sometimes I hear it presented to me as if only so-and-so would get their stuff together, we could experience a healthy relationship. And it's true. Sometimes so-and-so does need to get their stuff together and then we can have this kind of relationship. But I'm not asking you to apply it to anybody else. I'm asking you to apply it to yourself. As as far as it depends on you, says Paul, live in unity, live at peace with one another. And so you can't control others, but you can control yourself. So in which area here do you need to ask God through the Holy Spirit to strengthen you 
so that we will pursue the unity that Christ has established for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church that you have established. We thank you for the privilege of being your family, of being your sons and daughters. Father, thank you that through the cross of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, you have united us together as one. And I pray that we would truly give every effort to maintain that unity, no matter what it might cost us. May we humble ourselves before one another. May we humble ourselves before you and experience what it is you have for us to the full. Amen. As we move to communion today, I want to start with a quote I ran across this week from John Calvin, who was writing about the unity of the church. This is what he said, and I want you to see where he ends up with this. He said, not all articles of true doctrine are of equal weight. Some are so necessary to know that they should be certain and unquestioned by everyone as proper to religion, such as God is one, Christ is God and the Son of God, our salvation rests in God's mercy and the like. There are other articles of doctrine disputed among the church, which still do not break the unity of the faith. I'm not condoning error, no matter how insignificant it may be, nor do I wish to encourage it, but I am saying we should not desert a church on account of some minor disagreement, if the church upholds sound doctrine over the essentials of piety and maintains the use of the sacraments established by the Lord. Interesting to me that he ended with the sacraments. He's talking about baptism and communion, that the church continues to practice these things. Why is that so important? Well, because the the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are symbols and signs of what unites us. We, We do these things as a visible way to express the spiritual reality of the unity that Christ has established for us. It's a way that we express it. It's a way that we celebrate it. It's a way that we live it out. So baptism is an incorporation into the body of Christ. It's a sign of one's inclusion in the body, in the church. It signifies a desire of this person to contribute to the well-being of the church. We've seen that already today. The Lord's Supper, then, is a participation in the oneness of believers with one another and with Christ. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17. He says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all share this one loaf. We all share this one meal together, this common reflection on what Jesus has done. So every month we practice the Lord's Supper together. We eat the bread and we drink the juice or the wine to remind us of the body of Christ which was broken for us and the blood of Christ which was shed for us. And so I'll invite you to participate with me now if you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. We'll take the bread together. Jesus said um, on the night he was betrayed, writes Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the way in which you have expressed your love for us through the cross. Thank you for the way in which you express uh, patience and humility and gentleness towards us so that we might experience unity with you and unity with each other. And so it's with grateful hearts that we say thank you that you have redeemed us, that you've freed us from sin, and that you've given us eternal life through your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.